Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. There was a time not too long ago when the road to winning the NBA championship went through St. Louis. Yep, St. Louis. In fact, had it not been for St. Louis's NBA franchise capitulating to league demands, the NBA might actually look very different than it does now. Heck, there might not even be a Boston Celtics. It's not as far-fetched as you might think. The demise of the Celtics was very real, and in the end, St. Louis saving the Celtics contributed heavily to the end of the NBA in St. Louis. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Greg Marisak, founder of the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame and former voice of many St. Louis teams, joins the podcast for a look back at one of the NBA's most dominant teams from not so long ago, the St. Louis Hawks. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hope everyone had a great holiday season and a wonderful new year. I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes about the St. Louis Hawks. They were one of the NBA's most dominant teams, and had it not been for the Hawks, the Boston Celtics might not exist today. That's a fact. Bill Russell might never have gone to Boston. The Celtics might have folded, and who knows where the legend of Red Auerbach might have been made. And while it's a huge part of the history of the St. Louis Hawks, there is so much more to their phenomenal story that now plays in Atlanta. And joining us in just a moment will be Greg Marisek, the founder of the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame and former voice of the St. Louis Blues, the St. Louis University Billikens, and owner of several St. Louis area radio stations. Now, before we get to today's show, a quick reminder, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook or check out our website, SportsFH.com. When you visit, you can read more about our guests. We have links to articles and videos about our subject, like the St. Louis Hawks. You can drop us a note, suggest topics for future shows, ask questions, or more. Also, especially if you enjoy Sports Forgotten Heroes and listen on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Everything helps as we continue to uncover heroes from yesteryear whom time has forgotten, like today's topic, the St. Louis Hawks. A team that appeared in the NBA Finals four times in five years and won the NBA Championship in 1958. A team that one of the NBA's greatest played for, Bob Pettit. A team that other such greats as Cliff Hagen and Easy Ed McCauley played for. 
a team that bowed down to the wishes of the league office and let its coach leave and go to Boston, that agreed not to draft Bill Russell, and a team that wowed its fans for much of the 1950s and into the 1960s. But it was also a team that had to deal with significant racial issues and a team that inexplicably never found itself in the good graces of city leaders like its fellow professional sports franchises, the Cardinals and later the Blues. In fact, it got so bad for the Hawks that it had to purchase its own 24-second clocks because the city wouldn't outfit the arena. So, why were the Hawks, a team that the city of St. Louis welcomed, with such open arms, a team that won the NBA championship in 1958 and nearly won multiple other titles, ultimately treated as the city's ugly, red-headed stepsister and forced to move away. Well, Greg Marisek, the founder of the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame and former voice of several St. Louis area sports teams, is here to tell us more. Greg, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Welcome to the show. Warren, I appreciate it uh, very much, and uh, I can talk about the Hawks all day long. (laughs) Awesome. Well, let's start with this first. Tell us a little bit about yourself. The teams you've called play-by-play for, the radio stations you've owned, the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame, and where your love for the St. Louis Hawks comes from uh well let's do the the last first and yeah i've I've been very very fortunate to uh, uh to know so many people in sports here and get a start uh, with a newspaper here and having played college baseball here and mm-hmm. whatnot so i so i met the right people to get into the business and uh people who were willing to help me uh start uh, different companies so it uh, it it's been a, a great source of pride and uh that I've been able to, to get it done for this city. But let's let's start with the uh, the interest in the Hawks, where it came from. It was pretty mm-hmm. simple. My father was a sports fanatic, mm-hmm. and he was a senior vice president of a manufacturing firm. So consequently, he was got virtually season tickets to uh, the sports teams that we did have. And remember, uh, we only had. Uh, the Cardinals at at this time. Right. Um, we didn't right. have a football team. We didn't have anything else. Right, and that's the football Cardinals. I mean, the uh, and that's the baseball the, the same Cardinals. Baseball Cardinals. The baseball and, Cardinals, right. And even then, that was, you know, in 1954, um, when the Baltimore Orioles were, or Baltimore was going to take over the Browns, uh, the Cardinals were actually going to move to Houston. Hmm. Uh, it was pretty much a done deal. Hmm, because I didn't there know was that. no one here to to uh, buy the team. Remember, Fred Sy had been um, indicted and put in jail for uh, fraud. He owned the Cardinals, and part of the uh, sentence was he had to sell the team. And of course, the league wanted him to sell the team, and mm-hmm. there was nobody to buy the team. So it was all but done. And uh, at the last minute, some city um, fathers uh, begged and convinced Mr. Bush to get involved in, in saving the team for the city after its great history in the early part of the century. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't know a hockey puck from a basketball from a baseball, but <laughs> he did it because he knew it would be good for selling beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they were here, 
And then right on the, their tails comes this other opportunity. And, uh, you know, the Hawks, um, the Hawks came from, uh, uh, um, uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee. well, before Milwaukee, they were at, at um, Tri-Cities. Tri-Cities, that's right. They were the Tri-City Blackhawks. And then became uh, the Saint, the, um, the Milwaukee Hawks. Then came here, so it, it came down to the opening night, uh, 1955, November the fifth. I was six years old, and actually it was a day game. And my dad said, "I'm going to take you to a basketball game." Well, I didn't know much what it was. <laughs> yeah, and we went down to Keele Auditorium, and he's telling me all about the what they do. And he said, now you're going to see a game where they can score over 100 points. And I said, what? No, 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 no. I was used to baseball, you know, six to Greg, four. Greg, i got to interrupt three. for a second. That is the funniest thing because I remember my first ever basketball game. My father took me to Madison Square Garden to see the New York Knicks against the Baltimore Bullets, and he said, watch this, they're going to score over 100 points, and I was flabbergasted. Well, there you are. Well, in fact, I said no to the point that he bet me. He made a bet, and he said, to Greg, if they scored, if they don't score 100 points, uh, I'm going to owe you a chocolate sundae, <laughs> and vice versa. Of course, I didn't know what, I didn't have any money, but... Um, so anyway, it's the it's the Minneapolis Lakers who were tremendous at that time, and uh, our new St. Louis Hawks. And sure enough, uh, both teams scored over a hundred. It was uh, I believe it was 110 to 105, something like that. And I was same thing. I was just shocked, <laughs> um, but had the greatest time of my life and got hooked on them quickly, because you know when Ben Kerner he didn't bring us with an empty cover covered when he came from Milwaukee. No. He came with two guys, two great pros, Charlie Scher at center, and of course Big Blue Bob Pettit, one of the great forwards of all time, uh, came to St. Louis. So we got a we got a, an Albert Pujols right out of the gate. Ah, that's that's awesome. What about uh uh you know you've called play by play for some of the teams and and tell me about the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. Well yeah I, I did um uh, while I was uh, being a sports writer, I decided I wanted to get into the broadcast business somehow. Got again some great help, and uh, ended up starting a production company uh, called SNI Sports Network. And the SNI stood for the three letters of the newspaper for which I worked. Wow. And uh, the publisher there was kind enough to pick up all the bills for me to get started. Did that for two years. And as long as I would stay as the um, chief columnist for the newspaper. Uh-huh. So it was it was a deal deal. And uh, I went about buying rights to things. And at first, uh, I bought the uh, rights to St. Louis University basketball uh-huh. and St. Louis University hockey. And uh, I did the play-by-play on both of those on radio for uh, both teams. And then we did some uh, television for hockey. And I resurrected a TV contract for uh, for the Billikens. I didn't do the games, but it, I arranged for it. So I did that, and and uh, having done Billiken hockey, it came to the point where the Blues came. Now we're uh-huh. going to have a third team. Right. And the Blues came in 1966, and uh, Dan Kelly, who was the great play-by-play voice of the Blues, 
uh, one night his color man wasn't going to show up. And he called me. I was actually at a friend's house. He called playing pool, by the way. <laughs> and he called me and he said, Greg, are you coming to the game tonight? I said, nah, I wasn't going to come. He said, well, you are now. <laughs> he said, I think you're the only one who knows enough hockey in town to help me. I need a color man. Otherwise, I won't have a break all night. <laughs> so I jumped in the car, went down to the uh, arena and uh, walked into the X booth. And that was scary. Because now here I am doing a game with Dan Kelly. Sure. For the, in the National Hockey League. And the first time he threw the mic to me after a goal, um, I didn't say a thing. I was silent. <laughs> and he laughed and he threw it to commercial. He said, uh, uh, we'll be back in a moment here on KMOX. This is St. Louis Blues hockey. And uh, he said, don't worry, you'll talk next time. <laughs> and sure enough, then I talked all night and he decided he liked me better than the other guy and got me the job. And the other guy didn't mind. He didn't want to do it really anyway. So <laughs> I, uh, then I merged into being the play-by-play voice of the bill, uh, the blues because Dan Kelly was moved to radio only uh, uh-huh. in St. Louis. KMOX wouldn't allow him to do TV, mm. a competitor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did... Uh, Blues hockey, and uh, then I uh, I had already done uh, St. Louis Stars professional soccer in the North American Soccer League mm-hmm. with Frank Lieber, the old CBS voice of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh wow! And uh, that was that was a real treat too. And and the big one was getting the Missouri Tigers, and uh, I did uh, the play-by-play for Missouri basketball throughout Norm Stewart's run of championships. Oh wow! And uh, I also did uh, some TV there. Uh, we actually quite a bit of TV for Missouri uh, in great years, great years mm-hmm. when they had great, great teams. So it was fun. I, I can tell you this, the, um, uh, you know, you never get used to it, even though it got to the point where I'm doing a lot of games for different teams. And that's why I finally, actually, I resigned from it to concentrate just on production and writing and, and doing other things because my young son, had been born and he barely knew me. Mm. In yep. fact, my wife yep. said, uh, he only knows you when you're on TV and he walks up to the screen and he talks to you. Huh. So I said, well, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. So, um, that's the time that, uh, I called it off, but, but the great thrill was, um, you know, I'd stay in there. I, I was the Noel Picard was my color man, great old Montreal Canadian. Mm-hmm. And we're staying, I just remember different nights and one in particular, we're standing in Madison Square Garden and listening to the national anthem before the face-off in the quarterfinal round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I, I whispered to Noel, I said, Noel, pinch me. And he goes, what? I said, pinch me. <laughs> and he did. I said, ow, that hurt. He said, well, you say pinch you. I said, well, I just want to make sure I was really here because I can't believe that here I am doing the play-by-play to hundreds of thousands of people in St. Louis uh, with their professional hockey team uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's awesome. It was a thrill. That's awesome. But, of course, today we're talking about the St. Louis Hawks. And, you know, I've always thought that the New York Knicks – the Boston Celtics, and the Golden State Warriors, who were originally the Philadelphia Warriors, 
are the only three original franchises left in the NBA. But can a case be made for the Hawks? I mean, after all, they started in what was called, I believe, the National Basketball League. Or were they in... Right, exactly. Right. It was called the Basketball, Basketball Association so- of America. Right. They came from the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, and there was the second league, the National Basketball right, League, which was the Knicks, the Celtics, and the Warriors. So they started off in Tri-Cities. They went on to Milwaukee, then St. Louis, and then Atlanta. At worst... Correct. Very few NBA fans probably know of the Hawks' history and just how old the franchise is. So could an argument be made that they are actually an original team? Oh, absolutely. No question. They were there. And, of course, they actually, you know, they came from, you know, we say uh, Tri-Cities. They actually came from Buffalo. That's right. Remember, That's they, right. Were, they were in Buffalo and went to Tri-Cities. And... um and and from there, so yeah, they were they were playing at the same time that uh, that, that those uh, other teams, the Knicks, the Celtics, uh, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, even Washington and Toronto had teams in mm-hmm. that uh, in those leagues, and we actually won. We were the St. Louis Bombers. Yep. And uh, that was the original team before the Hawks came. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bombers played four seasons uh, and won a won a championship once and was close another star, but it did just didn't take. And of right. course the whole league didn't take. Right. Why? The only thing that came out of that was that Ed McCauley uh became a star uh, at St. Louis University and he was uh carrying the, the day to keep the bombers alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up on I think Boston and then back to St. Louis. But we'll get to that. Why yeah. did the Hawks move from Milwaukee to St. Louis? And how much did baseball play a role in the Hawks leaving Milwaukee and the fact that all St. Louis had was a baseball team and that actually might have helped St. Louis land the Hawks? Well, that's right. It still was a gutsy move by uh, the owner, Ben Kerner, who actually had no other business interest except the Hawks, to which he said he was always losing money. And uh, what got him was that one day, and uh, Bob Pettit tells the story of the best, one day uh, the Hawks had a dramatic victory in Milwaukee mm-hmm. over the um, uh, the New York Knicks. Mm-hmm. And it would have been in the Sunday newspaper, and they never beat a team like the Knicks in Milwaukee They were because uh-huh. they were so bad. And here he gets the paper to read about his game story, and instead of his game story being on the front page, there was a headline that Billy Bruton from the Milwaukee Braves had bagged a dozen quail. <laughs> and he said, that's it. That's it. Because he didn't find a hawk story for about four or five pages. <laughs> and he said, we, we got to get out of here. Yeah, I could understand that. And, and then uh, they were courted by uh, the great sports editor of the Globe Democrat here in St. Louis, Bob Burns, to, to come and play a practice game and see if they could sell tickets. And it worked. Mm-hmm. And they came down even on a holiday in March and um, sold tickets through 8,000 people for a wow. exhibition. Wow. And he said, that's good enough for me. If you'll take the team, we'll come. Mm, interesting. How hard was it for Ben to convince the other owners to let him move from Milwaukee to St. Louis? 
Well, apparently they, it wasn't, it wasn't hard because it couldn't have been worse. Uh-huh. Um, the heart, the, the, um, the skeptics were the national media, which said, why would you go to a city that had already lost a hockey team in the St. Louis Flyers? Uh-huh. Were just losing, just had lost the St. Louis Browns. Right. Who went to Baltimore. Right. And, um, again, we're backed up having a, um, uh, only had a baseball team again. Right. That was the only franchise we had. So, uh, he proved them wrong, of course, because the Blues took, or the, the Hawks took off, and yep. they took off because they won a lot, yep. and they won early. Yep. Why, why, why did they move from St. Louis to Atlanta? I mean, after all, on the court, as you just said, they were pretty successful, weren't they? No, yeah, 13 seasons here, 12 seasons in the playoffs, four uh, trips to the uh, championship round, one world championship. Uh, it's like 10 conference titles. I mean, they, they were tremendous. Eight Hall of Famers. It just... So we had a great team, but there were two issues going on here in our city. Um, one was, and you know what? Our city hasn't changed that much in this way. Our city's still divided and getting new resources for sports teams, but they refused to upgrade Keele Auditorium where the Hawks played. And while it was a beautiful site and uh, they had these uh, great, when you went to Keele to play a game, it was like you're watching a play in a theater because all the lights would be off except the candles right over the court. There are no lights in the crowd. And it was, it was fabulous. It was intimidating. But he wanted to upgrade. He needed more. He needed the broken seats fixed. He needed a suite or two made. He 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 needed something else to to keep the crowds. And he we had standing room only almost every night. But he could see it coming with a hockey team coming. That uh, this is going to get really difficult. So um, they refused. They wouldn't help him. They did, however, help the hockey team get here. Mm-hmm. by upgrading the St. Louis arena. And that really irritated him. He actually had to buy his own 24 hour, 24 hour, 24 second shot clock for the end, which was a league rule. I mean, right. he had 24 seconds to shoot. The city said, we're not buying those. Hmm. So he, he had to buy them. And he also bought the scoreboard at center court. Wow. They wouldn't do that either. Wow. I mean, re- ridiculous stuff that the, the city, wouldn't help him with expenses, and yet he was the uh, only the second pro team that had come in and and was filling the house and giving them national recognition. Right, right. They were, like we said, really successful. Is there much talk about the Hawks today? I mean, do people even know they once had an NBA franchise and an NBA uh, only, franchise only that if won you, a championship? You've got to be older than we got to be about fifty years old. Or you just explored the history of St. Louis and found it. That's, which is why I did the books and why I built, uh, put a beautiful display downtown at the hockey arena, mm-hmm. commemorating the Hawks full of stuff. And I just w- watch the kids come in, and uh, they don't know what they're looking at. I love to go up and talk <laughs> to them and say, you know, you missed this. This was really something. You, you know, you asked me why they left. And there was uh, there was a second major issue, and it can't uh, be skirted around. We definitely had racial problems. Yeah, you write and, about uh, that in your book. Yeah, uh, African American athletes were not welcome. 
even the baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1964, when the Cardinals won their first World Series in 18 years and went to have a post-game all-night party at the biggest hotel in town that Mr. Bush had set up, the Sheridan Jefferson Hotel downtown, they all went to the party except uh, the African-American players were stopped at the door and uh, Bob Gibson, who, and without them, we don't win anything, by the way. Bob right, Gibson, right. Bill White, and Kurt Flood couldn't come to the party. That's crazy. So uh, my, Stan Musial found out about that. He was inside, and he said, you get, the, you get the owner of the Sheridan Jefferson on the phone. And they did. And he talked to him. He said, well... He said, I'm sorry, Stan, but if I do that, I'm going to lose other customers. And so, fine. So, Stan said, fine. Shut, we're shutting this down, and we're leaving immediately. Any of the expenses that have been tallied up so far are, are yours to take care of. And, of course, Stan had a restaurant across town, Musial right. and Biggie's. And so, right. he called there, and it was full of people. And he said, just apologize to all the people. Tell them they need to be out of there in one hour, and I'm also going to give a free dinner to each of them to come back. Wow. And they went there for the night. So that was our other problem. Uh, I know players who were trying to sell season tickets were rebuffed by even corporations who said, there's just too many African-Americans on the team. I can't sell this. That's crazy. That's, that's, that's unreal. And yet today, you know, we still see some of that. It's amazing. I've done several podcasts where we talk about how race was such an issue so long ago. And it's crazy to think that race, in many instances, is still present today. Yeah, they actually, they actually people would say, well, it wouldn't be so bad if so much of their body wasn't exposed. Oh, geez. Yeah. You know, wrap them, wrap them up in clothes and yeah. maybe it's okay. Yeah, well, let's 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 not go down that uh, rabbit hole. Let's talk about the Hawks. Here's a team that was a perennial loser. They moved from Milwaukee to St. Louis and wind up making the playoffs their first year in St. Louis. Right. And then they almost pull off the unthinkable and make it to the NBA Finals by going up 2-0 on the Fort Wayne Pistons in the division finals. But then the Pistons storm back, and they take the last three games and move on to the finals. But, wow, what a first year. Can you tell us a little bit about that year? What was to come? Yeah, absolutely. Can Can you tell us a little bit about that first year and then what happened in the playoffs? Well, yeah, when they first started playing here, Ben, ben was a little worried that, oh, my God, it might be another Milwaukee because nobody's come to the games. Mm. And um, they were drawing two or 3,000 a game. And all of a sudden, they started winning. And and then Bob Pettit uh, was obviously on his way to a record-setting season. Um, and it, it that's really opened the door and attracted people. And then once they were going down the stretch and it looked like they – definitely could make the playoffs, people got excited. Again, they were the only game in town in the mm-hmm. wintertime. Sure. So, um, uh, and we had picked up a great star uh, from the Celtics in, in uh, Cliff Hagen. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, of course, that was, that, was a great, uh, that was a great coup because we weren't going to get Bill Russell anyway. There was yeah, no I want to get into that whole story 
And uh, what a, he'd, what a he'd already told story. the Cocks he wasn't going to come. If they, if they drafted him, he was going to sit out another year and right. go back in the draft. Right. So so Ben gets a call from uh, the Celtics because they're going out of business. They were in bad shape. Which is just they're drawing one or two thousand a game. Crazy to think yeah. that the Boston Celtics were almost gone. Right. I mean, uh, the uh, Maurice, I believe it was Podloff, who was the commissioner, called the Hawks, called Ben and said, we need your help. We got to save the Celtics. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Will you trade? Will you trade with them to give them the draft choice so they can get Bill Russell? Right. But there had to be another. There, there was, there was another piece to that. But let's get, let's, let's go back to that in a second. Let's continue okay. on about this first year where, where, really the Hawks come out of nowhere because they were not very good in Milwaukee, and they pushed the Pistons to the limit. And that right. was a sign of things to come. And and they became a very competitive team during their time in St. Louis. But, and I guess, yeah, let's get to it. What happened after that first year in St. Louis had such a profound impact on the NBA? So I have a series of questions here that okay. all relate to the Hawks and just how this team really helped shape the game we watch today because Correct. my questions revolve around red Auerbach, bill russell the boston celtics the rochester royals and of course the hawks so let's start with this first red Auerbach. he was actually <laughs> at one time the coach of the hawks in milwaukee but if i read correctly the nba wanted him in Boston. Can you talk about how Auerbach got to Boston? No, you're correct. You're correct. And, it, and Ben didn't mind that because Ben didn't like him. Uh, <laughs> ben didn't want a challenger to his power. Uh, ben was going to be the, the Jerry Jones of the day. He was the owner, the general manager, and he's not going to have some coach. And, and Red, even then, was a kind of a loudmouth guy. He was... he. Uh, he got things revved up, and so he said, "Sure, I'll I'll make a deal to get uh, get him to Boston." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then, then of course, we had Red Holzman, right, as the first coach here, and uh, uh, Red didn't Red didn't do very well. He held them together, um, but um, they needed more, and uh, Alex Hannum was the guy, right. Right. And and Hannum really, you know, took the Hawks to that next level. But before we get to Alex, Boston, as we were just talking about, was actually struggling. And there was talk that the Celtics might actually fold. Our back and the NBA wanted Russell in Boston. And here's the yes. key. Rochester owned the first pick of the 1956 draft. The Hawks were second, and the Celtics were third. This right. Whole so getting team, the Hawks uh, picked wasn't an assurance that you were going to get Russell right. either. Although, and, although, yeah, um, 
he was going to be traded anyway because they didn't think they could keep him either. Mm -hmm. Well, and they didn't have to worry about it because Rochester ended up selecting Cy Green. St. Louis took Russell, but the trade had already been worked out where the Celtics would send Ed McCauley to St. Louis and Cliff Hagen to St. Louis. Talk about this entire situation and and how important it was to get Russell to Boston and the talent that Boston gave up to go to St. Louis and why Rochester ultimately selected Cy Green. Well, that's that's a question for another day. Who in the heck made that decision? <laughs> was I was out of his mind, um, but it did help save the other uh, save the Celtics. And really, the um, the deal was that, and Ben Ben was such a sly guy, you know. He the deal was Macaulay uh, for um, the draft pick mm-hmm. for Russell, uh, hopefully. And Macaulay didn't want to come back. A St. Louis native, a, a great star at St. Louis U, an All American. St. Louis U won the national championship, their one and only time, and. Um, but he was doing. Uh, he was already seven seasons with the Celtics. He was been All Pro three or four of those, and he was very popular up there. And he said to Red, "Ask him." Well, no, it was actually the owner, Walter Brown. Ask him would he go to St. Louis, and he said no. Hmm. Why? Why? He didn't want to come to St. Louis, even though it was home, because he was doing so well in Boston. He didn't want to have to start over. And he looked at the Hawks, going, "Plus, you're sending me to a team that's just trying to get it together and on the rise, but." You know, the Celtics were going to be great um, with uh, Kuzi and Charmin and all the other guys. But, but then happened. what happened, of course, was the very sad story of uh, Ed went home and uh, got a call from his wife, said, you need to come home. And they went to our children's hospital there and uh, found out that their young son, their their baby, had spiral uh, meningitis, spinal meningitis, and he wasn't going to live. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in those days, they just didn't have the deal. Well, he ended up living 14 years. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, that was enough for um, Ed to go back to Walter Brown and said, go ahead and trade me. I need to go home. Right. So the, so it's kind of quirky how all these stories work out. But then Ben still didn't, appro- didn't uh, approve uh, the deal read just straight on up. And uh, he had to dangle another carrot out there and said, you know, Red, if you want this deal to close, I need another player because Russell's going to be a superstar. You got to give me more than Macaulay. And Red went nuts. I mean, he thought the deal was over and all that. And then when uh, um, Ben Kerner asked for Cliff Hagen, they said, "Well, we can't. We're not going to give Cliff. He'd been a star at Kentucky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, he's going to be a star in the NBA. We can't give you two of those guys." And he said, "Well, then there's no deal." Well, they came back, of course, and they said, all right, yeah. we'll do the deal. And and it was the right deal for us because, again, we weren't going to ever get Russell anyway, yet we, he was smart enough to figure out if we got a couple of stars, talented guys to go along with the rest of this crew, we might have a shot. Right. And, of course, both of those guys are in the Hall of Fame today. And, uh, and actually, in, in our championship season, the leading scorer, people think of Bob all the time, of Pettit, the leading scorer of the championship series was Cliff Hagen. Right, right. 
And, you know, the other thing that I find interesting, if I follow this all correctly, did, did Cy Green wind up on St. Louis as well? Later oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, later on he did. It's, it's just, what a fascinating series of events. Now, I also have to scratch my head and think to myself, take race out of the picture. And that's a, that's, that's a big thing to take out of the picture. But right. one could only imagine what would have happened if the Hawks decided to draft and keep Russell and Russell decides, okay, I'll play for St. Louis. There might not even be a Boston Celtics team anymore. And the St. Oh, Louis right. Hawks might have become one of the most storied franchises in NBA history. I mean... Yeah, if, if they could have got it done. Yeah, <laughs> it's just... If they could have got it done. Now, the league did one other thing for Boston. They, they created the All-Star game. There wasn't an all-star game. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they said, we got to do something special for Boston. Or, you know, again, we got to get this thing built up fast. So uh, they started the NBA all-star game, put it in Boston for the first year. It was a big success. And uh, the funny part is, of course, Ed McCauley was on the all-star team uh-huh. for the Western Conference. And Ed's uh, great. Ed, Ed was uh, had a terrific game, scored 24 points. About, I don't know, eight or ten rebounds. Just had a terrific game for those days. And uh, the players, he said, we didn't, we didn't practice or anything. We'd all gotten, uh, left our cities, went on trains, went to Boston, got there a couple hours before the game, warmed up and played the game. Turned around, and we were on the train as soon as possible, back. <laughs> that was it. And then two or three weeks later, Ed gets uh, a letter in the mail from the NBA, and they said, um, Ed, uh, this is to notify you that the Basketball Writers Association, who had covered the All-Star game, decided it would also help our league if we they would start a Most Valuable Player Award for the All-Star game, and you have been selected as the first winner. <laughs> of the most valuable player award. And I said, well, where's the boat? I mean, in the cars. What'd you get? He, he said, no, I just got that letter. <laughs> and I said, unbelievable. So anyway, that's in the eight, 10 years ago, I did a kind of a spoof on the whole deal, but it also brought the Hawks further back to life here down at our mm-hmm. big Missouri athletic club. I put on a tribute to Ed McCauley and uh, we had the NBA make a new trophy. And it was the exact duplicate of the one that he would have received. Oh, wow. In, back in those days with all the winged uh, angels on the side and it stood, but it stands about four feet tall. It's currently in my house. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's going to be uh, going back to the, the hall of fame, but yeah. So uh, it was funny that uh, he was the first guy and uh, was the first wardee of the Most Valuable Player Award. Crazy. Wow. And that, what again, cool helped story. Boston survive. And and then the Hawks-Celtic series, you're right, is truly what saved the NBA because it was the first time the television got interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the teams were so evenly matched and the games were so good that it was in Game 2 in uh, the 56-57 season that NBC called him and um, 
said we we we're interested in uh, televising the rest of the championship series, and they did, and it brought it to national television for the first time. They paid fifteen dollars, fifteen thousand for the rights. Yeah, I thought I thought that something there was something there about Boston. Was it this series where Boston didn't want NBC to televise it because had had the had NBC televised the game, the owners of Boston, I guess Walter Brown, thought, well, my fans will stay home, so I'm not going to make the kind of money I want to make. So they had to come up with some sort of fee to give Boston to for the rights to to televise that series to make good on the tickets that Boston felt it wouldn't sell because the game was on TV. Right. And they did. They sold all the tickets <laughs> <laughs> and they got, and they got paid. It was wildly successful. Those double overtime games, those two years was just uh, it was just tremendous and, and gave the NBA a name on a national scale. Yeah, the whole the whole dynamic between St. Louis and Boston is so interesting because they the NBA works with both teams to make these trades to get our back to Boston, to get Russell to Boston, Macaulay and Hagen go to the Hawks, the Hawks who had been perennial losers, Boston who was a, a team that was in danger of folding. These two teams end up playing each other four out of five years in the NBA Finals. I mean, it was just it, – it's such a, an interesting time. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you had already referred to 57. The Hawks were in the Western Conference, uh, a weak Western Conference at the time. They were something like 34 and 38 and 57, but they swept right. Minneapolis in the Division Finals, and then they advanced to the NBA Finals to take on – the Celtics, what a great series. And I think St. Louis surprised so many people by pushing the Celtics to seven games. Tell us about the 57 NBA Finals and just how great it was. And some say that Game 7 ranks as one of, if not, the greatest games ever to be played in the Finals. Can you tell us a little more about the series and that Game number 7? Sure, and actually it was Game Six. They won. In, they won four okay, games. Game to two. Six. Okay. Yeah, and uh, of course they had won the first two games in Boston, as they had been doing each <laughs> of the year, and then they'd come home and lose. And uh, again, Cliff Hagen was the absolute star of uh, of that series. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. you know, he he helped Bob Pettit so much because he was just as big a threat, and you had to. You couldn't just key off on one because then you get the other. But uh, going into game six, after after um, uh, leaving Boston, Bob Pettit said, you know, we've got to win game six at home. We can't go back to Boston. We can't think that the miracle is going to continue and mm-hmm. us keep winning at the Boston Garden. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got to play our hearts out to win this game six at home. And it was an incredible game. I was fortunate. I was small. Still, I think I was 10 or 11 years old, but I'm sitting about three rows behind the bench. And um, it was it was just a fantastic basketball game that went back and forth and back and forth. And uh, 
the best story out of it, of course, and uh, you probably saw it in the book, was when there was a timeout called with uh, a little less than five minutes to play uh, by the Celtics, and the Celtics are up Mm. a couple of points. And um, the Hawks get in the huddle, and Alex Hannum, who's a fiery coach, and he's drawn he's drawn on the floor with a piece of chalk. Bob Pettit never went into those huddles. Bob said, I always just stayed on the perimeter and kind of peeked into what he was doing. <laughs> and, uh, but this time, as Ed McCauley, uh, told me, but many times that Bob, uh, Bob put his arm on the shoulder of Ed McCauley and his other arm on the shoulder of Cliff Hagen and he said, boys, excuse me, parted the ways, went into the middle of the huddle. <laughs> and uh, on his hands and knees was Alex Hannum. And Alex said, to him, uh, Bob, do you have something to add? <laughs> and with that, Bob, who, who again, never gestured or did anything like that, slammed his open hand on the court. And they all kind of jumped up and he said, Alex, just give me. A gosh darn ball. And, of course, he said it a little stronger than that. Yeah, sure. But uh, that's what he said. He said, so as they walked out, Ed McCauley went out with the guys on the court, and he went to each player, and he said, you heard the boss. <laughs> he said, if any of you takes any shot but a layup, I'm going to break your arm. <laughs> And sure enough, it worked. One shot was taken besides Bob. It was a layup by Slater Martin. Otherwise, Bob scores uh, 19 of the final 21 points in the game. And uh, we win by a single point, 110 to 109. And the city goes crazy. And Boston was just shocked that they lost. They were shocked. Right, right. So, So 58, of course, was the magical year. It was, it was. And the crazy thing is... If people, if fans of the NBA were looking back to see who won titles every year, they would see that basically at that time, Boston won the title every year, except for once. A team from St. Louis. And prior to that, the Minneapolis Lakers were dominant. Right. A a team from St. Louis, you got to be kidding me. Well, the Hawks were the NBA champions. They had just relocated a couple years earlier were perennial losers and had soared to the top of the basketball world. I mean, it's incredible. And this is a team that actually went to the finals four out of five years, 57, 58, 60, 61. They won in 58. Just how good were they? And were they connecting at that time with their hometown fans what was the relationship like between St. Louis fans and the team? Well, they were the biggest human beings in town. And they would walk down the street of what at that time was a bustling downtown here. And here comes three six-foot-nine guys walking down the street. And people instantly knew who they were. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Bob said, we didn't have to buy lunch or dinner. Somebody would always pick up our tabs. Right, right, I'm sure. We were, the, we were genuinely the toast of the town at the time. The Cardinals uh, were not very good. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the 50s, the Cardinals were uh, a team that would finish seventh out of eighth, eight teams in the National League. And had they not had Stan the Man, um, nobody would have gone to the games. They're only drawing seven, 8,000 a game. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the Hawks were drawing more than that. Wow. Obviously playing a lot less games, but they were outdrawing the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the throughout the NBA playoffs, the, the, the Hawks got the headlines every day, the top headlines, and the Cardinals would be somewhere else in the sports section. So mm-hmm. uh, they were um, they were dominant. They were close-knit. Um, they all became great friends afterwards. There were certain haunts that they, uh, they went to after games here. And they had, you know, the Hawks had a great advantage too at Keel Auditorium. Bob Cousy said to me, he says, we hated to go to St. Louis because he said they had that row of men on that first row. And be, and he said, besides the lights, you're, you're such the focus of attention because of the lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got this whole row, you know, you got players with their, uh, you got fans with their feet on the court <laughs> and they're sitting next to the coach or to the owner. And they they are the biggest business guys in town, but they only got the seats because they were loud mouth. Huh. And Ben said, if you're willing to get all over the referees and get all over the other team, I'll give you first row tickets. Wow. What and a, he did, and they were they were known as Murderer's Row. What a great time to be a fan of a basketball team, because yeah, and they're all smoking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right, they were all smoking. Yeah. It's that's right. The the arenas. I I I remember looking at footage of many of the arenas, and there was always a cloud of smoke. Oh yeah, different always. time. Different time. Now the players would smoke at halftime. <laughs> oh, they do it. Yeah, yeah, they would. Hey, let's talk about some of the key figures of those teams. And one of the greatest players of all time and one of the greatest players ever was Bob Pettit. Tell us about Bob, certainly one of the league's forgotten superstars. And you can't start a discussion about the St. Louis Hawks without first discussing Bob Pettit. Well, that's right. And that that, that keeps the the Hawks alive in in, uh, nationally today in history you hear his name once the playoffs come you usually hear his name a couple three times and he's often in the stands he's in his mid 80s mm-hmm. he still stands six foot nine he hasn't bent over at all mm. he has no illnesses or disease and in fact his wife and he traveled the country playing in bridge tournaments oh wow so i said boy you come a long way <laughs> <laughs> from the NBA but he bridge. was uh he was a quiet leader. He was just uh, determined. You know, Bob was the first guy that they knew of who actually um, employed a uh, workout um, trainer in the off season. Yeah, I was going to get. And about he went out to San Diego, there, California, yeah. and trained with the guy in the off season just to build uh, dexterity and strength. And uh, Slater Martin said it really worked because when Slater Martin got here from uh, the Knicks, he said when we we, he said around the league you knew that when Bob Pettit got a rebound, if you could get close enough to him, you could slap the ball out of his hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said he came back the first time from that uh, trainer, and it was like hitting an iron post. You couldn't get that ball out of his hands unless you had a. A needle to deflate it because it was, he, he didn't, he put two hands on the ball and he dared you to try to take it. And that's why, you know, the guy averaged 16 rebounds a game for his career. Wow. You know, I mean, 
26 points per game, 16 rebounds, uh, half dozen assists. And, you know, the, the, the one little known fact that people, every time the NBA finals are on, I call whichever network has got it. And I know guys at most of those. And I say, you know, you guys keep forgetting. You talk about these, um, these greats who played in the NBA finals and it's, Elgin Baylor and it's Jerry West and it's Bob Cousy and it's Will Chamberlain and all the others. I said, you know, you, you keep forgetting the one uh, great statistics that Bob Pettit owns, and he still has it today. He is the leading scorer of all time in an NBA Finals championship game uh, where his team won. Hmm. He scored he, he scored fifty points in that last game, game six, mm-hmm. and that has never been broken. Oh wow. I didn't know that. That's awesome. And and Yeah, I mean that, where you know, where's uh, King James or uh yeah. Jabbar or any of those guys? They didn't do it. But fifty they, games in a championship deciding game is the way it's termed. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And and it's probably they don't refer to it because Nobody remembers the St. Louis Hawks. Yeah, well, you know, MVP four times in the All-Star game when you had to earn it, not like today when they decide before the game yeah. who, they, who they're going to make the All-Star. He, he, also um, has a, he also has a great little story very similar to that of Michael Jordan in that he couldn't make his high school basketball team in his freshman or sophomore years, but he never correct. quit. He never quit. Right. In fact, he led his high school team to a state championship in his senior year. Again, he didn't make the school team in his freshman or sophomore years, but finally made it in his senior year, I guess actually in his junior year, and then led his team in his senior year to the state championship. He was filling out his body. He was growing. And he had an intensity about him. And I saw a great quote about him by Bill Russell, who said, Bob made second effort a part of the sports vocabulary. He kept coming at you more than any man in the game. He was always battling for position, fighting you off the boards. Man, Pettit had no quit in him, did he? And and that might have been the biggest part of his game, how fierce a competitor he was. Talk about that. Well, a uh, good good example was um, when they played the Celtics. The, the Hawks uh, uh, overall did very well against the Celtics, and in particular, um, Bob had his best games, his highest scoring games. He averaged over thirty points a game against the Celtics. Wow! Through his through his career, huh. and the best story Red Auerbach told me was, uh, he said we'd be playing the Hawks. And, of course, Bob is, is making his baskets, doing his rebounds, doing the whole thing. And by the third quarter, Bill Russell, who's guarding him, he said, we called timeout, and Bill Russell drags himself over to the bench, and he's got his hands gripped on the bottom of his shorts, and he's breathing hard. And Red said, what's wrong? And he said, Red, you need to get another damn player to follow him around. I cannot do it. <laughs> that's awesome and, and that's the way he was imagine if there was a three-point line that's why i think all the records need to be separated actually 
because there was such a difference in the game. There was no three-point line. So you say these guys today have all these thousands of points. Well, these guys in those days shot much further out from the basket uh-huh. than the guys today. Yeah, they didn't. They shoot at seventeen feet out today. In those days, a twenty-five footer was a normal shot. Yeah, that's true. And uh, all those guys would have uh, a lot more points had that existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a moment I think when um, Ben Kerner, who who owned the Hawks, thought about shipping Pettit to the New York Knicks. What stopped him from doing so? And did that move ultimately affect Kerner's ability to keep the team in St. Louis? Well, yeah, I think the St. Louis Mafia probably took care of that. Hmm. <laughs> um, but Ben was to the point, he was a little, little old man, lived with his mother, and got to the point where he was fearful that hockey, again, was going to take away his income. Mm-hmm. And that his only hope is to find somebody to buy the team. And actually, he he offered it to every St. Louis entity he could. He just didn't run off to Atlanta. Uh Um, Guys who are here today, uh, one group's called the Lou Fuse Automotive Group. They're gigantic. They were there then. They were Hawks sponsors, and they refused them. Um, The brewery, of course, had the Cardinals, so uh, they didn't want it. Uh, Then our grocery store chain, which now has almost every store in town called the Schnooks stores, they turned him down. And uh, and nobody in the government structure got involved, and so he thought he was on an island. Right. And said, you know, I don't know how many more years I can do this. I don't know how many years I'm going to live. And it's too bad because, boy, could he have made a lot more money. Yeah, yeah. You know, he made he, he sold it for $3 million. Right. And he was turning a profit. But before we go back to that, how about this? How much do you think Bob Pettit's legacy is affected by the fact that he played in St. Louis and St. Louis no longer has an NBA franchise? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, no question. Uh, all of the old Hawks are um, just like the NFL now that we don't have an NFL team. We had some great teams in the 60s and 70s, sure. and we know them, and they live here. But, um, yeah, you don't get mention of them very often. Of course, what if, what if Bob had played on an East Coast uh, team? Yeah, like if they had. Where he gotten uh, a lot more publicity. Uh, I mean, he would have been the the super superstar. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if Kerner had shipped him off to New York to play for the Knicks, um, I think his legacy would be that much larger. What about Cliff Hagen? Tell us a little bit about Cliff. Um, well, Cliff always played second fiddle to Bob, but uh, he enjoyed that role. They were they were best of pals, and of course, Cliff Hagen was great to have around because uh, uh, otherwise Bob would have never had less than two men on him at all times. But Hagen had to be guarded closely because he could score as well. He had the he patented his famous hook shot, running towards the baseline near the corner, and he would hook it his right-handed hook shot and make it all the time. He'd hook the, the ball from everywhere, and nobody I, I, does anybody in the NBA have a hook shot today? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I haven't I, seen one a true hook shot. No, I think you know. Uh, I you mean, know. under the basket, a little yeah. tiny hook. 
but there's nobody from the head of the key hooking the ball. No. <laughs> no. It doesn't happen. And Hagen was a great rebounder, and he was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a tough guy, and he'd drive the dive down lane, switch hands, and he could lay it up under the basket either way. He was a real catalyst, and there were many, many games where he picked Bob up where Bob wasn't having a good night. You know, there were plenty of nights, too, that Bob scored 10 or 15 points, but then Hagen had 25. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were they were the twosome. They were the fearsome twosome in the league uh, in those years. Mm-hmm. But they also had Ed McCauley with them. Talk about Ed. Yeah, but Ed became, you know, Ed became a substitute pretty quickly. He wasn't, uh, when he got here, he'd again been seven years in, and it wasn't long. Well, he Ed, uh, Ed McCauley was put on the bench by Cliff Hagen. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, while Ed was alive, he was and he, one of my best friends in the world. We really miss him. But he would kid and say all the time, he'd say, you know, that Hagen put me on the bench, and it was the best thing that Alex Hannum ever did. <laughs> and, and speaking, Put me on yeah. the bench and get him out there. And speaking of Alex Hannum, tell us a little bit about him. Well, obviously he was a, he was a fireball. He was a great defender. I mean, Alex uh, would come in and defensive, you know, he was a player coach like many guys were. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would, um, he would come in at times where they knew they needed to shut somebody down or uh, just play defense, uh, the key point of the game. Uh, I mean, the the, uh, the best story of Hannon, Han, and he was uh, he was just a loud guy, a drinking guy, you know, which Ben Kerner didn't care for all that, but he did care for what Hannon brought to the table as a coach. But it was in that 56-57 um, uh, championship series against the Celtics, and we could have won two. See, we should have won two of these, but twice in the double overtime, uh, we gave up the lead and lost. And uh, the, the one that's the best story was we're, we're down 125 to 123 in the second overtime in Boston, and um, the Hawks called a timeout. They had to go the length of the floor, and Hannum's, Hannum's calling a play. And he said, Bob, here's the deal. You go down to the other end of the court. You stand under the basket. As soon as I release the ball, you move to the head of the key, and I'm going to hit the backboard. The ball will then hit the rim, and then you can tip it in. (laughs) And he said, Slater Martin and Bob just cracked up. (laughs) And they said, Alex, you couldn't hit the ocean with the ball. (laughs) How are you going to do this? Because he was a terrible shooter. He said, I'll just do it. Just do it. Well, he did it. He took Hagen out of the game, by the way. He took Hagen out of the game and replaced himself in the Hagen spot. And sure enough, he throws the ball. And it's on video. You can you can see it online, I believe, on video, actually. Oh, wow. And uh, the ball hits the backboard, and it rolls around the rim. And Bob is a step away, and he taps it. And he taps it too hard, and it just rolls off. <laughs> or at least we'd have been in triple overtime. Wow. Wow. That's a good one. That's a really good story in NBA history. I want to ask you about one more person 
in regards to the Hawks. He wasn't there with the team when they won the championship, but he is a key figure in their history, and that's Lenny Wilkins. What can you tell us about Lenny? Well, Lenny's a good story, and what what a great gentleman he is and is today and a Hall of Famer. Um, Lenny was at Providence, and in fact, at Providence, he had beaten our St. Louis University Billikens in the NIT uh, just the year before. Then the Hawks draft him, much to the chagrin of Ben Kerner, who didn't think he was any good. And uh, Paul Seymour was our coach at that time, Mm -hmm. and he drafts Lenny, I believe it's 1960-61. And he said, all right, you drafted him, but don't, don't play him. And Paul said, I didn't draft him not to play him. He said, I'm telling you, I'm going to fire you if you play him. So he didn't play. <laughs> he didn't play for a while. And then uh, it was in um, December. I don't know how many games into the season they were when finally he had to play because they had injuries. Mm-hmm. And he had to play the whole game. And it was in New York. It was with the Knicks. And Lenny scored over 20 points, had like eight or 10 assists. And after the game, the reporters came up to Ben and they were going to nail him on this. Uh, Why hasn't he been playing before? And Ben says, hey, I love Lenny Wilkins. He should be in the lineup every day. (laughs) My golly, I'm going to talk to the coach. This is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, uh, Lenny, uh, was great while he was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. he didn't get to enjoy a championship here. Um, he did in Seattle, but uh-huh. uh, not here. Uh-huh. Uh, right. But he was right. a tre- he was a tremendous player. He actually put, um, I think it was Al Ferrari who was the the uh, guard, the other guard at the time, mm-hmm. and he moved Al out basically because of what he was: great ball handler, great shooter. Mm-hmm. And left-handed, which was an advantage, you didn't see many of those, right? And uh, and could defend. He, I mean, he could do it all. He was certainly on the All Hawks team that uh, we selected, mm-hmm. uh, which is all part of the book. Right, right. You know, all these great players, all these great seasons, and yet St. Louis couldn't hold on to the team. Heck, they even played All Star games in St. Louis. And yeah, we got an award. We got an award. I've got the big, big thing. It's a big brass basketball uh-huh. on a stand in the basement, and it was awarded to Ben Kerner for his outstanding um, um, con- in conducting the uh, All-Star Games for such an outstanding job of putting them on and promoting them because they weren't going over real well in other cities. So consequently, we got three All-Star Games in seven years. Right. I mean – and and again, I go back to they couldn't hold on to the team. Why did yeah. Ben want to sell the team, and why was it so hard to find local ownership? It just it just makes no sense, and that's where I think um, again uh, that the race card was was here, and maybe some of those business leaders were reluctant, uh, and and there was so much upkeep needed to the building. Yeah, how much a Keel Auditorium? Which was torn down. Yeah, how much a Keel Auditorium play a role in the Hawks leaving? Because, like you said, the Blues come in; they're going to play in St. Louis Arena. Eventually, Chicago sends the Football Cardinals to St. Louis. They make yeah. out okay, 
And right. they just, you know, the Hawks just couldn't find their way in St. Louis. It's it's baffling. And, you know, I, I do you think maybe had they had more success in those championships against the Celtics that they might have stayed in St. Louis instead of moving to Atlanta? Oh, no, yeah, no question. If, the, if they had won that second championship, and again, if it just won – civic-minded person stepped up and said, you know, Ben, I'll join you. You know, don't buy it from him. Just join him and be a co-owner. They had Marty Blake, who became, uh, gosh, almost a Hall of Famer himself. And he he originated the the role of scout, of recruiting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. college basketball players. I mean, nobody did that. Marty started it. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Hawks were recruiting guys that no nobody ever heard of because there was no TV, and you'd have to literally get on a train or a plane and go find these guys and mm-hmm. watch them play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a, he was a big help in getting these players here. So, yeah, it just it was one of the saddest days as a young boy in our lives. We woke up and heard that the Hawks were going to leave and. And, of course, the NBA immediately promised that St. Louis will have another team within five years. Well, good luck with that one. How'd that work out? Yeah, no, <laughs> obviously it didn't. You know, the other interesting thing is is that Kerner had sort of given up on selling the team, and then here comes this guy from Atlanta, and right. Kerner doesn't even take him seriously. He says, yeah, all right, I'll talk to him. And instead of taking him to a nice lunch or a nice dinner, he takes him downstairs in his office building for a hot dog and chili or something like that. Yeah, and, right, and, right. And he turned down a New Orleans group. He'd already turned them down. Yeah. and But this guy in Atlanta, in Atlanta I think his name was Tom Cousins or something like that. Yes, Tom he, Cousins. He was he was he was as serious as a heart attack. He wanted the Hawks. He has a hot dog and chili with Kerner. A week later, they're talking about a real deal, and bam, the St. Louis Hawks. Because he was are building gone. the Omni. Right. He needed a team. The arena and the shopping center, and he wanted a bat. He wanted a team. It was the easiest one to get. How about the players? How did they react? They, well, some of them didn't go. Lenny didn't go. Pettit didn't go either. The cousins right? right away said, "Trade me because I'm not going to Atlanta. I'm not going to set one foot in Atlanta." Hmm. hmm. And Bob was gone. Yep. Bob laughed today. They got his. He got his jersey in the rafters, and they had him down for a big ceremony. <laughs> he said, "You know, I'd never played here ever." <laughs> <laughs> now Hagen did. Hagen was the only one who went. Uh huh. And then he went on to. Uh, Actually, he would be a star, uh, in the ABA. He went to the ABA. Yeah, he played for, the I Dallas think, the Dallas Chaparrals. Yeah. 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 Has there so ever, it all split up. Yeah. Has there ever been talk about bringing a team to St. Louis, an expansion franchise, or relocating a team? Why do you think St. Louis has not been talked about more when it comes to the NBA? Well, I don't think the NBA, I don't think they're going to expand anytime soon. It would have to be a relocation, I believe. And uh, there has been some several guys. Now, remember, we, we actually, uh, when Bill Laurie uh, was owning the Blues, he went after uh, the Sacramento Kings, and he thought he had them. And uh, he was denied uh, late in the going 
of bringing them to St. Louis because they weren't doing diddly out there. Right. And uh, they turned him down. And now there's a guy here, uh, a guy who could buy and sell anybody, mm-hmm. a billionaire who's um, local. And uh, he's sniffing at it, at least. You know, I know that. I've even telling some of my uh, reporter guys that I used to employ. I said, you know, you guys ought to just sniff around this. He, this guy doesn't need any money. He's a basketball guy. Mm-hmm. He just watches basketball. And um, he doesn't need a nickel from anybody. He doesn't need the city to contribute anything. He's got the, he can use the building downtown, which is great for it. And he just got to get a team willing to come. And at least he's looking at it. Um, I don't think it hurts the hockey team in any way. I think you're talking about different audiences. Sure. And besides that, the hockey, the people who have the hockey arena would just as soon have another tenant. And that's really how basketball started anyway, was right. the, the original six owners of the teams in the National Hockey League were trying to figure out a way to make money on the nights that their hockey team was out of town. So they needed right. something. So they came up with basketball. It's uh, sure. that's crazy. No, I think it'd be, it'd be great. I mean, we, uh, it's scary what's happened here in St. Louis with the, these teams. And of course the Rams going to LA yeah. was not our fault. Right. Uh, right. At all, we offered to do everything, but Kroenke just wanted to be uh, a Hollywood hero, and so we lose the Rams, and uh, now we're apparently close to getting a MLS team. But that's that's quite a bit different. Um, yeah, it's not a twenty-two thousand seat stadium that plays thirteen games a year at home. It's, that's not the same. Yeah, it's not the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, or the NFL. Um, It's not one of the four majors. Hey, Greg, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You've been a terrific guest, and um, we never really covered it, but tell us a little bit about the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. Well, it's great. uh, After my escapades, uh, all the things I've done, I decided to want to do something at home, getting older, and... um, I realized that St. Louis didn't have a sports hall of fame with all our great tradition and history. We didn't have a hall of fame. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I just took it upon myself to hold a press conference and say, we're going to have a hall of fame. I'm Mm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I got help from people. In fact, the blues stepped up first, but the Cardinals are involved in helping us. And what we do is, uh, we nominate and, um, put into the hall of fame, great amateurs, and professionals in Metro from Metro St. Louis and Southern Illinois. So it gives you a wide range of great athletes. And I mean, we've had from Stan Musial to, to, um, Bill DeWitt to Joe Torrey to Kurt Warner to Dick Vermeil to Bob Pettit, Hagen, all the Hawks who are even ones now who have deceased. So we've, um, and, and a lot of local great amateurs. It's been, it's been a great run. It's 10 years old. And uh, we've got a big year planned ahead and uh, hoping to um, finalize a deal to move into a new facility. Oh, cool. In this year. So it's it's great. And uh, people can have some fun and look at our website, stlouissportshalloffame.com. Real simple. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a beautiful website that tells the history of all St. Louis sports and all of we've done and pictures of the players, interviews, videos. Lots of things are on it. And if you're a Hawks fan, 
I've got two books that I know you can find on Amazon. You can. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, Full, full Court is was the first one I did, The Untold Stories of the St. Louis Hawks. And it's a day-by-day chronicle that's that's really kind of fun to read because I've got all the goofy stories and fun stories uh, talking to players from the Celtics and the Lakers and the Hawks. And, and uh, it's really kind of entertaining book. And the second one is called The St. Louis Hawks, A Gallery of Images and Memorabilia. And it's a coffee table book with just some stunning pictures. Uh, in it because they are the original pictures taken by the only photographer that Ben Kerner ever allowed down on the court during a game to take the pictures. And you can see the sweat beads roll off their arms here 60 years later. Cool. Um, Clear as a bell because he had lights on the court and he was the only guy. I wrote the, the second book because of him. He called me and he said, why didn't you use my pictures in the first book? I said, first of all, I didn't know you had them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, sure, I'll do another book. That's basically the photography, and it is, it's gorgeous. And these books have sold very, very well. Very cool. So the Hawks moved to St. Louis from Milwaukee for the 1955-56 season and stayed through the 1967-68 season. And I think it's safe to say, those were the best years in the history of the Hawks franchise. During their time in St. Louis, they appeared in four NBA championships and won the title in 1958. As Greg and I spoke about, the team had one of the NBA's true legends in Hall of Famer Bob Pettit, who would probably be way better known had the Hawks remained in St. Louis. The fact that the city had been promised a new franchise immediately after the Hawks left, and they were promised a new franchise on a few other occasions, only to come up short, for whatever reason, is a real head-scratcher. Although Greg did mention a few potential reasons why, and they're not very pretty. And that's a shame, because St. Louis is truly one of our great cities, and when its fans get behind its teams, like the Cardinals and the Blues, it makes for a great atmosphere. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about one of the NHL's true legends, a guy whose name is rarely mentioned in the same breath as many of the league's greatest defensemen, but it should be when you consider what he did over the course of a long career for the Detroit Red Wings and the Toronto Maple Leafs, Red Kelly. That's next time. For now, thanks again to today's guest, Greg Maritek, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.